0: And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, April 11th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, a recipe for resilience in the event of a damaging cyber attack. Plus, the Coast Guard focuses on Arctic ice and in the water in between. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, President Joe Biden signed a new executive order last week on modernizing the regulatory review process. The White House says its proposals will update policies that have not changed in more than two decades, while making just the whole process more equitable and inclusive, their words. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, let's begin with how they plan to modernize something that probably could stand a dose of modernization.
1: Yeah, the uh, executive order issued last week follows up on a presidential memorandum Biden signed on his first day in office on modernizing regulatory review. So this is really a two year kind of process coming to fruition here. The EO aims to fold more considerations for uh, underserved communities, the White House says, into the regulatory review process and also make changes to how agencies measure the cost-benefit analysis of their actions. Um, it also aims to reduce the number of regulatory actions brought into OIRA, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, by raising the threshold for regulations that require a rigorous cost-benefit analysis. Raises that up from $100 million to $200 million, And the White House estimates that would actually bring that down, the number of uh, impact analysis, by about 20%. Um, compared to recent years. So that's kind of the summary, high-level summary, of what the the White House is looking to do with this really in-the-weeds regulatory review process.
0: Got it. So raising the threshold that requires review then eases the workload on the reviewers, but then it doubles, in some ways, the burden on industry or those regulated parties that don't get the benefit of a full cost-benefit analysis. It seems like
1: that could be the effect here. Uh, You know, the White House says that it will produce a more efficient, effective regulatory review process, protecting people from harmful toxins and things like that. So that's kind of the other view. Uh, improving rail safety, they included uh, OIR administrator Richard uh, Revez included that in his blog post. Obviously, we just had that situation in East Palestine, so they 're pointing to that situation uh, as as sort of an example of of how this whole regulatory review process could improve things going forward yeah
0: that 's a difficult one to follow because there were already rules in place for transporting chemicals for how rails are supposed to operate. And as far as we know, that was, we don't really know what happened there. So it's interesting that they point to that as something that requires, I guess, more regulation of what? Chemicals, of, of transportation modes, of railroads. I guess we'll wait to see then. And there is also some guidance, and this gets to the heart of it also, promoting more public participation in the regulatory process.
1: Yeah, that's actually a big piece of this. In a memo to regulatory policy officers at agencies, Revez, the LIRA uh, director, talks about different actions agencies can take to promote more public participation in that whole process. You know, there's public meetings, of course. He also points to the need to use easy-to-use under easy to understand language, the use of online and alternative platforms and media to reach communities that might be affected by regulation, and plain language guides and expanding the use of public engagement tools like requests for information early on in the planning process.
0: One of the issues that has been discussed by the people that participate in this whole regulatory process, and that's a lot of people across government, almost every agency in some sense, is how to deal with automated comments that come in from bots. And under standard rules, they all count as a comment. And that can skew what maybe the perception of reaction is to a given rule. Does the new plan address that particular issue?
1: Yeah, Biden's directive actually requires the administrator of OIRA to come up with guidance or tools that will help agencies deal with automated comments from bots. You know, several years ago, there was a Federal Communications Commission rule That received 24 million comments. This was the net neutrality rulemaking back in 2017. And the study later found that millions of those comments were fake, including ones that were deliberately filed using other people's email addresses, uh, you know, those of senators, journalists, and even dead people. And uh, obviously, these automated campaigns are intended to disrupt the public comment process. So OIRA is being tasked with taking that on.
0: Yes, that's that's an issue. I mean, the rulemaking experts will tell you that rulemaking is not a plebiscite. That is to say, if there's 100,000 comments for something and 20,000 against it, that doesn't mean you necessarily go with the rule because of the 100,000. The Comments are designed to inform rulemaking, but not vote on it, really. But still, when you get a million, it can shut down the ability of people to comment, and they're undifferentiated. It's like many years ago, offices used to get flooded with postcards and letters that were written, you know, and identical. Now it's electronic means has magnified the ability to do that. Any reaction so far from industry or any of the affected groups or government activists? I mean, who's who's talking about this?
1: It's been pretty muted so far, but there's a public comment period here where I'm sure we will see a lot of those interested parties from industry and activist groups and others uh, put their two cents in. Former White House officials have called it a quote-unquote thoughtful job from the Biden administration here. That's the words of Jason Furman, who was the chair of Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. Also, John Graham, who served as a wire administrator under President George W. Bush, said he thought it was a pretty thoughtful process. He says the biggest challenge will be the new guidance on distributional equity in rulemaking and how that will require new data collection by federal agencies, as well as training of agency staff and contractors on how to undertake this equity-weighted Analyses. So he says that will be one of the big challenges here.
0: Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. All right, you got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Coast Guard focuses on Arctic ice and on the water in between. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Lots of nations impinge on the Arctic Circle. Even more try to use it strategically, like China. That's why for years the U.S. Coast Guard has been stepping up its patrols in the Arctic and why it convinced Congress to fund two new heavy icebreaking ships. At the recent Sea Air Space Conference, I got an update on Arctic activities from the Coast Guard's Vice Commandant, Admiral Steve Pullen.
2: A lot of dynamic changes in the Arctic. It's a growing area of strategic competition. And if we want to protect America's sovereignty, ensure that the Arctic remains safe, open, stable, uh, we need to project Coast Guard presence in the region. And so that's what we're doing. We're, we're focused on building Coast Guard presence. And how many
0: nations do you encounter up there?
2: Well, a- any nation that has the opportunity to uh, flag a vessel and navigate freely, I mean, we'll encounter up there.
0: But, I mean, within the Arctic Circle, uh, there are a certain finite number of nations that feel like this is our zone
2: there are many arctic nations right there are eight arctic nations eight, the united yeah. states happens to be one of them but any commercial vessel can enjoy freedom of navigation under customary international law and as we see ice recede we see more navigation routes becoming open so this is going to be a pathway for commercial commerce into the future we have to be able to ensure safety security and environmental protection for our waters and our natural resources but we also need to work collaboratively with partner nations, to build a coalition of the willing who wants to see a free, stable, and open Arctic.
0: Now, a few years ago, one of the issues was cruise ships were deciding, hey, this is a great way to we can get through now. And I remember the Coast Guard was worried we're going to have to drag a cruise ship out of here or unload 2,000 people or something. What's going on in that particular domain of business?
2: I'm glad you raised that. You know, this is a remote area. It's a difficult operating environment. But it's a growing area of what we call ecotourism. And so any mass rescue operation will be challenged. So what we're trying to do is work with partners to build a coalition of search and rescue capability in the region. But importantly, it's also the responsibility of the owner-operators of these cruise ships to make sure that they're prepared to operate in that environment, that they have the capability on board, medical standards, cold weather gear, things of that nature, so that they're prepared to handle what are their primary responsibilities to care for passengers.
0: And do you find that that tends to be the case? Uh, do you have any inspection authority or any certification we, we, authority we, we, there?
2: We do. And uh, we find that they're responsible operators. I, I think they understand it just makes good business sense to have a, a, a safe cruise ship and to keep passengers safe. You know, there, there there is a coalition of folks who share our goal of making sure of safety, security, and environmental stewardship in the Arctic. And so we're We're relieved by that. Uh, In in fact, I think there's a growing willingness on many Arctic countries to come together to talk about issues of mutual concern. I think of the Arctic Coast Guard Forum where we bring Coast Guards together from those Arctic nations to talk about what we can do collaboratively to protect not only our own sovereign interest, but where we have uh, mutual goals.
0: With the creation of new passages by warming, climate change, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. the need for icebreakers is still acute the coast guard absolutely because you've got a couple of keels under construction
2: that's right right now we only have one medium icebreaker that can only operate in the arctic and one heavy icebreaker that can operate in both the high latitudes north and south that's not sufficient we need to have a coast guard that can maintain a persistent presence year-round in the arctic and the antarctic and we do that by building Coast Guard icebreaking capability. And I should correct it and say it's not just Coast Guard icebreaking capability. These are national strategic assets. These are national icebreakers.
0: So you have a couple, there are two under construction.
2: Right now, Bollinger, Mississippi Shipyards, it was Halter. Bollinger recently acquired Halter. They have the contract to build three polar security cutters. These are going to be heavy icebreakers. We've got full funding for two. The FY24 budget has long lead time materials for the third polar security cutter we're calling them heavy icebreakers we're working with Bollinger to get to a more advanced detailed design we're working with them on certain shipbuilding techniques because this is this is a difficult ship our offshore patrol cutter which is 360 feet long it's going to replace our medium endurance cutters has about 17 different modules if you will the polar security cutter has 85 it's a much more complex ship the thickness of the hull is orders of magnitude greater than you right. would put on a standard Coast Guard cutter. So there are issues of retooling and welding, the use of robotics, advanced techniques to build a, an icebreaker that you wouldn't normally have to use with other shipboard construction. So th- that's why it's taken a little bit longer than we had anticipated, uh, but I'm optimistic about the acquisition of the project.
0: And what about the training and personnel requirements for greater Arctic operations, including the icebreaking when you have three or four you know, fully functional vessels?
2: No, that's a great question. We're going to have to build the Coast Guard in terms of assets, but also in terms of people. So that's what we're committed to doing. Our focus is getting the ships through the construction process. At the same time, you know, we will build that cadre of Coast Guard ice sailors, if you will. We already have incredible capability in the Coast Guard. We've leveraged the icebreakers that we do have, and we'll continue to build on that. I have the training in place. To, to have that effective presence that I talked about.
0: And when you construct these ships and design them, is care and feeding, for lack of a better word, of the ice crew, that must be an important consideration because that is not exactly lolling around in the Caribbean.
2: No, ab- absolutely. People are our number one priority. They're our greatest asset. And so not only do we have to give them the tools that they need to do the job that America asks of them, but we also have to do it in a way that provides crew habitability, connectivity, the safety, the security, and just the the, the comforts that they need to do what, what's asked of them as well. So these ships incorporate that idea? They, they do. They're, they're going to be incredible ships. Uh, technology as well. You know, we have to leverage technology. Younger people today are used to dealing with technology. I came into an analog Coast Guard, you know, almost four decades Well decades you know ago. what a dial phone is I, I i do i took you know i had to use ibm punch cards at the coast guard academy i mean that's how dated i am but you know you look at young people today and they thirst for technology and and technology is going to make us more efficient and it's going to make us safer for me leveraging technology buys down operational risk and so that's what this polar security cutter is about that's what all our coast guard new construction is about it's about giving technology to the people that we're asking to do the hard job of the nation.
0: And getting back to operations in the polar area, Russia must be all over the place up there now.
2: Yeah, they, they have more icebreakers than we do, many more. Some are ice strength and some are heavy icebreakers. Uh, the fact of the matter is presence matters. And in order to be present, you got to have the capability to be present. The only way to do that is with new icebreakers. And when we have presence in the area, we not only protect the United States' interest. But we ensure a rules-based order in the Arctic. That's the only way you can do it. You know, you you blunt malign activity, but you also, by maintaining presence, reinforce that rules-based order. Maritime governance, we call it. You make sure that this is an area that that has sound and good maritime governance.
0: Because Russia has been snatching Americans off the street in Russia and in the air war, the non-air war happening in that region of the world there crossing our planes, coming close, our drones, strikes, this kind of thing. There's been a lot of as close to conflict as you can without having it in the Arctic or anywhere in the Coast Guard. Do their their cutters cut your bow across, that type of thing, and cross well, your T or anything like that? Well,
2: well look, our, our focus is on good maritime governance and making sure that we can detect, deter, and defeat malign action, whatever flavor or color that is. And we think we do that by maintaining a presence in the region and a sustained presence in the region, not just episodic, but sustained.
0: And if an icebreaker cuts a way through, can a regular cutter then go in there? I mean, can you have other presence that is persistent that's not an icebreaker in the Arctic?
2: Well, we've got to be very cautious about using cutters that weren't constructed for an ice environment. So you know, we we'll, could
0: get in, but they couldn't get out, or something. Well,
2: huh? you know, we would look at what maybe future force packaging looks like but uh, right now our focus is to build a capability for a cutter that can have sustained presence that starts with a polar security cutter and then we're also talking about what an arctic security cutter would look like which would be a replacement to that medium cutter that we currently have in inventory you know what do we need Mm -hmm. to maintain both a persistent presence in the north high latitude and also in the uh, antarctic
0: and by the way, are the Polar Cutters capable of launching aircraft? Are there copters on them?
2: Yeah, yeah exactly. They'll have a flight tech. Uh, it's important that we have that to improve maritime demand awareness, the logistical issues. It helps with the science mission sometimes when we deploy up there with the National Science Foundation. And, and it's just a, an added margin of safety for our crews. So absolutely.
0: And you conduct exercises and operations and with the other Arctic nations that, that care about this? Well,
2: we do now. We do now. Right. With our other cutters that aren't ice-strengthened or don't have ice-breaking capability, we'll do it during the summer months when certain waters are ice-free. I think of, you know, off uh, the North Atlantic. We work with the Canadians. We work with uh, Denmark. We work with the U.K. and France. And we do some similar exercises with Canada in the Pacific Arctic area off Alaska. And we'll continue to do that. We'll con- I think it's important for us to build interoperability with partners and allies that share our mutual goals because securing the entire Arctic is something that the United States can't do alone, right? Our our focus, yes, is in part on protecting our own sovereignty, our sovereign rights, and our national interest. But we have a continuity of interest across the Arctic, not just off Alaska. And the best way to build up that governance is by doing it with like-minded partners and allies.
0: Who else has ice cutters besides... United States and Russia up there.
2: Well, you know, China's building oh, icebreakers, yeah. <laughs> and they are not an Arctic nation. But Finland and, and they Norway, have. and right, all right. There are a lot of, uh, of the Arctic partners that have some level of icebreaking uh, capability. What we need to do is, is we need to build capability for the United States. You know, you, you mentioned Russia before. We're lagging behind you know, we need to accelerate, and that's why we're fully committed to the polar security cutter. And and I will say, we are so grateful to the administration and Congress uh, for their support for the polar security cutter. We haven't built a heavy icebreaker in this country since the early 70s, and I'm not sure that I ever envisioned during my tenure in the service we would be building other heavy icebreakers. So I'm just really excited about this acquisition, about this project. I've talked with Bollinger. They're excited about it as well. So Again, I remain optimistic about the future.
0: And it'll have (laughs) Wi-Fi.
2: It'll have a lot of bells and whistles. It'll have great technology. And uh, we're going to do as much as we can to enable those great crew members on board to do Coast Guard missions up there and national missions, not just Coast Guard missions, national missions.
0: Admiral Steve Poolin is vice commandant of the Coast Guard. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive wherever you go. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how the approaching debt ceiling crisis could hit contractors first. But first, a recipe for resilience in the event of a damaging cyber attack. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. No cybersecurity measure is 100% reliable. That's why agencies need a dose of resilience, the ability to get back to normal if a cyber attack were to succeed. For how to get more resilient, a group of smart thinkers got together in Washington. One of them was former Federal Chief Information Officer Tony Scott, who joins me now. Tony, it's good to know you're still pretty much in the swim these days. Great to talk to you this morning. And tell us what happened that you came up with a good list of ways that agencies can become more resilient. What was the methodology for getting at this list?
3: Well, we had a series of discussions, ultimately, that resulted in a roundtable, one in Washington, D.C., and the other in Rome, attended by a number of people who have a stake in the game or an interest in the outcome in terms of government and institutional resilience. And of course, it was Chatham House Rules. But if you look at the report published by the IBM Institute for Business Value, you'll see the participants and you'll see the set of recommendations. My role in this was to attend both of the sessions, one in person and one virtually, obviously the Rome one virtually, and then to summarize the conclusions and to summarize the discussion among the participants, found it to be a very robust and interesting conversation.
0: Well, notwithstanding that you got the in-person and by Zoom mixed up, because I would have definitely gone to Rome and done Washington by remote, but nevertheless, maybe quickly define what you meant by resilience in the ensuing report.
3: Well, I think broadly speaking, it means building mechanisms and resources so that in the face of cyber issues, no matter what they are, you can recover and resume operations to the fullest extent possible and do that in a reasonable time. The problem with a lot of our infrastructure and even institutions is they've been built over decades. And when harmed, depending on the degree of harm, you don't have decades to rebuild. You need to recover pretty quickly. And that's especially true of, you know, the digital infrastructure that I think everyone's most concerned about. But there are other aspects of it as well, because all of the digital manifests itself in some form of physical presence as
0: well. Is it possible to know in advance or to measure? Are there any metrics for resilience until you actually have to invoke it?
3: I think there's exercises that you can do um, and practices that you can engage in. And this was obviously talked about a lot in the report. And it's also been very valuable from my experience. The analogy you may have heard me use is, you know, you don't get to Carnegie Hall after your first violin lesson and practice in this particular case makes you better. And so one of the recommendations that we spent some time talking about was making sure that all the relevant institutions and organizations and stakeholders have multiple practice opportunities to recover from many different kinds of events that might possibly occur.
0: We're speaking with Tony Scott. He is currently the CEO of Intrusion and was federal CIO during the Obama administration. And you've listed in your after-action report here from these roundtables several steps that agencies can take to start to build in what is needed for resiliency, given how potent attacks have become. A review for us some of the other things they should be doing now.
3: Well, one of the foremost things is the talent problem. And this was number one on our list. I think all institutions globally have realized that the amount of resources and the skills of the resources that are available today are insufficient, really, to do the things that we aspire to do in terms of being resilient. So first and foremost, it's increasing the cyber talent pool of resources that it's available. and. Some of the recommendations included educating people earlier in cyber and making it a part of K-12 curriculum, for example, expanding apprenticeship programs, in some cases, waiving the requirement for a four-year degree for some of the roles that people can perform and a number of other recommendations like that to try to scale the cyber talent resource base above and beyond what's occurring today.
0: And one of the other recommendations was to improve organizational collaboration for faster response. And if you take that and the personnel question together, I guess my question is, is the government going too far in centralizing all of the knowledge and authority in CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, or should it remain diffuse, the ability to respond? In other words, could you build up CISA too much and atrophy some of the resilience that might be needed locally, agency by agency? Well, I
3: think actually, uh, and this was part of the discussion we had, you need both. You do need some center, everyone basically agrees, to coordinate strategy and to do some of the things that, frankly, only government is in a position to do. But you also need to have a lot of resource and activity at a very local level and make sure that it's adequate for the risks that are exposed at a local level. And so, you know, I think the recommendation very strongly is you really need both. I would never say at this point that we're over-concentrating or we have too much resource in the cyber battle because the reality is every day we're still seeing attacks and successful compromises and, and those kinds of things. and. I wouldn't claim that we're winning the battle at all at the moment.
0: Right. It seems like most of the damage that has occurred has been at the non-federal governmental level, school districts, healthcare systems that might be publicly operated and just government agencies at the municipal and state level.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. And what we've seen is that the cyber attackers have decided to go where the money is easiest to get, which is at some of these more mid-sized and lower-sized organizations that may not have the resources or the skills to properly defend against some of these attacks and uh, whom, in fact, may be more willing to pay a ransom to get out of an unfavorable situation. And so the, the level of attacks for those kinds of institutions has gone up. But I think that trend also still emphasizes the need for coordination across a broader scale because many of these institutions can't afford to mount the kind of defenses that would be needed in collaboration you know, with government and other resources can both educate them and also help them defend when these attacks occur.
0: And the other axis is aligning public and private sector cybersecurity priorities. And, you know, for many years, the federal government has had this kind of reporting relationship with different elements in the private sector, different parts of DHS and other agencies have their private, I guess, counterparts in industry. What more needs to be done on that front?
3: Well I think this is an interesting tie-in in some respects the questions an interesting tie-in to the new federal cybersecurity strategy that came out after these discussions had taken place but you know it has to do with shifting some of the responsibility and some of the resources that are needed to fight cybercrime and cyber criminals to to those organizations that are best prepared to have an impact so making software companies more responsible, making, uh, you know, telecom carriers more responsible and and the like, and then prioritizing all of that work, both from a law enforcement perspective, as well as, you know, legally and and governance-wise, I think are all big steps towards aligning our priorities and getting everyone on the same page in terms of what our policies are, how we're going to respond, who to call, you know, all of those kinds of things have been a bit confusing. And if the public and the private sector are a lot more highly aligned around what action we're going to take, who's responsible, what the pecking order is, all of that's good news if we can pull it off.
0: Yeah, cyber's never a set and forget, is it?
3: Hasn't been, at least in my experience, that's <laughs> for sure.
0: Tony Scott is CEO of Intrusion and was a federal CIO during the Obama administration. As always, thanks so much. Great to talk to you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his white paper, again published by the IBM Center for Business Value, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how the approaching debt ceiling crisis could hit contractors first. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. If you see a robed figure on the corner with a sign reading, The end is near, take note. He could be talking to federal contractors. The longer the debt limit debate in Congress drags on, the more likely it will interrupt federal buying. How's that? we turn to federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And you're postulating, Larry, that even if there is a deal reached at the very last moment, it could still throw the monkey wrench into the contracting works?
4: Tom, I am. And I I think it's important to note that while most of the country looks at the middle of June as the do or die date for getting a budget ceiling deal, for government contractors, that waterfall is uh, right in front of them. It could happen this week, it could happen next week, but you shouldn't be thinking about June as a government contractor, because it's gonna happen much sooner than that for government contracting for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the companies, uh, the people in government agencies that companies wanna meet with are increasingly going to have to be in continuity of operations meetings. They're increasingly going to have to plan, Tom, as if part or all of their agencies are going to shut down. Regardless of whether they ultimately end up shutting down, there are standard required plans for anticipating that. And here we are, scarcely 60 days out from uh, the cliff uh, that's been predicted. And right now, government contractors are probably already starting to see Their flow of business slowed down a little bit. Some of those meetings, particularly with senior level people, are going to be increasingly difficult to get because they're distracted elsewhere. This is going to have an impact on business at least into the third quarter. And depending on whether we get a deal and when, Tom, it could also leak into the fourth quarter.
0: What you're saying then essentially is that the fear, uncertainty, and doubt will mean that contracting The most discretionary of the discretionary dollars would be the first that people would start to hoard, so to speak.
4: Well, they're going to hoard those discretionary dollars, and they also might just stop spending them if they feel that their agencies might be shut down uh, and they are unable to take delivery of goods ordered. We actually have seen this before when the government did have a shutdown over appropriations. Companies would deliver things to government loading docks that were closed because of the shutdown, uh, and then they had a mess. That's the short version. All things can happen then, but uh, it was a mess. So I think agencies remember that. Maybe some contractors remember that, and that's going to have to play into the planning right now, Tom, that's going on around a potential debt ceiling shutdown, which we've never had before. So we don't know if it's going to be exactly like an appropriation shutdown or not. But we do know that it's going to cause disruption and that both contractors and their government customers are going to have are going to feel the effects and they're going to have to plan accordingly.
0: Right, because the Treasury would have to start deciding which government obligations are the most important and which are the least and so they would not choose its likely contractor obligations and spending obligations as a high priority, given what a crisis that would be, in other words.
4: I think that's a significant fact, particularly if you're a small business that relies on cash flow. Even if you've delivered something and the government agency is using it in the event of a debt default, we could really end up with seeing small businesses not getting paid because of the Treasury's prioritization of where available funds go. And it could be months uh, before some of these businesses are paid even on proper invoices. That's just one of many negative effects. What I'm really trying to drive home, Tom, is there are likely to be negative effects, even if we do end up with a deal at the last minute and contractors have to be prepared to understand what the potential impact of their business is going to be And in the unlikely, I hope, event of an actual default and partial shutdown, how much that could impact what happens during the fourth quarter.
0: We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Yes, because the fourth quarter will likely lead to another continuing resolution. And if that continues with 2023 programs, therefore, into fiscal 2024, at least you've got what could not have been spent during the debate over the the near miss of the debt ceiling deadline could then proceed under the CR at least.
4: So long as you can get something started now, Tom, with new projects, you know, that's really the deal between now and the end of the current fiscal year. You know, we certainly are going to start FY24 with a continuing resolution. And what I always counsel people is try to get those projects that are on the drawing board at least kicked off. You don't have to have the first play from scrimmage to follow the football metaphor, but they do have to get kicked off so that in the event of a CR, you can keep them going.
0: All right. And think of the deflate gate we'd have then if something (laughs) happened on the uh, dollar end of things. And I wanted to ask you about the Federal Trade Commission. You're telling your clients these days that that's an agency contractors need to pay attention to, perhaps to a greater degree than they would have in the past.
4: That's exactly right, Tom. I really think that government contractors should Add the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, to the list of government agencies they need to uh, look at in terms of the impact that uh, agency actions could have on their government contract business. Right now, we have a very progressive and activist FTC uh, that is looking at uh, what had been considered the normal conduct of business in several areas, but there are really two specific areas, at least Tom, that are or soon will be uh, impacting government contractors. Probably one of the ones that's most significant is uh, the weaponization of the False Claims Act to punish contractors that overhype the capabilities of their solutions. We've seen the FTC recently, Tom, turn its attention to artificial intelligence claims made by companies uh, and saying, look, If you're promising the moon and the stars, but you're not delivering it, that could be construed as a false claim. So it's that marketing message. You know, what's the veracity of your marketing message? Uh, And the FTC is really taking a hard look at that. And, of course, the the False Claims Act is a very powerful tool just from the civil side, Tom, where you have a per-invoice fine and the ability to recover treble damages. So that's one area. Another area where the FTC uh, is getting involved is in the use of non-compete agreements. Now, this isn't exclusive to government contractors, but in point of fact, many government contractors do have non-compete agreements in place with their employees. And earlier this year, the FTC issued a pretty substantial notice of proposed rulemaking that would essentially ban most types of non-compete agreements. There are reasons why non-compete agreements are in place. Companies spend a lot of time training employees and share sensitive information, and then the employee leaves and goes somewhere else. You really don't want to have them sharing trade secrets with a new employer. Nevertheless, the FTC believes that that's a restriction on the mobility of employees, so they're taking a shot at non-compete agreements. Although government contractors already have a host of agencies that they have to look at that could impact their business, Tom, unfortunately now they are going to have to add the FTC to that list.
0: Yes, because even if the FTC's actions are struck down in court, there's still that period of time and expense until all of that actually plays out, which could be years.
4: That's right. It it could be years, and typically it would be years. And If you're involved in the litigation, then you're having to pay for that. And that's a big cost of doing business. It's also a distraction from your daily business. Even if you're not paying to litigate it, if some of the rules stay in place during the time that the litigation is working itself out, you're kind of hamstrung by having to follow the rules, even if they are eventually overturned. And so that's a short-term cost and a short-term distraction at a time when you probably really don't want any additional distractions, what you're really trying to do is grow your company and service your customers.
0: And pay your employees. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much.
4: Um, thank you very much, and I wish your listeners happy
0: selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. After a 14-year ban, there's a crack in the wall, stopping A-76 competitions. If you remember Circular A-76, it's an OMB document that governs how agencies can compete federal positions considered commercial or non-governmental. Since 2009, though, Congress has prohibited any money being spent on A-76 competitions. In his weekly reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about why the House Republicans have started to chip away at that wall surrounding the competitions. Jason, let's start with reviewing what they exactly are and why they haven't been around for so long.
5: Tom, 876 and really the whole idea of competitive sourcing, public-private competition, whatever you want to call it, really dates dates back to the 1960s. And it's something that Congress put in place, uh, I think, during the right after the Eisenhower administration with this idea of, hey, the government seems to do a lot of work that the commercial sector does. Should that make sense? Should the government do commercial work? Should they compete with the commercial sector? And and should we have a way to understand what it is? Got some play, got some attention over the last, you know, the next 20, 30, 40 years, Tom. And during the Bush administration, George W. Bush, they made a big push as one of their presence management agenda items for competitive sourcing. And that obviously raised the ire of the unions and concerns about federal employees. Would their, you know, jobs be outsourced? And by the end of the Bush administration, Senator Barbara Mikulski, the former Maryland senator, put a provision in the 2009 appropriations bill that basically said agencies cannot spend any money to do these public-private competitions. And here we are 14 years later, Tom, and that provision sticks today. And there's been little to no public-private competitions. A76 has been dormant for the last 14 years.
0: Yeah, I think some of the younger generation might not know of that horrible danger (laughs) to their jobs. So now Republicans in the House are asking the White House about this. Why now? Because of budget concerns?
5: I think there's two things going on here. Number one, uh, they did write a letter to Shalonda Young, the director of the Office of Management and Budget, and that letter from uh, Congresswoman Nancy Mace, Congressman Pete Sessions, and Congresswoman Lisa McLean, they're all subcommittee chairwomen, chairmen of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee, Asking, number one, what is the status of something called the FAIR Act, which is the Federal Activities Inventory Reform Act of 1998? Have you put those out there? What what do they look like? Can we find them? What do they look like? The second thing they're saying is we believe this is important for two reasons. One, it's about an open and transparent government. What jobs are Commercial nature, what jobs are not inherently governmental? And then also, as we talk about, and this is what the subcommittee has been saying dollars and budgets, and does it make sense? Is it something to look at? Can the private sector do something cheaper than the government? And I think they're fair questions to ask. They're not saying let's bring back A-76. They're not saying we should outsource all of the government. They're just asking the question.
0: Is there any particular person behind this? It's
5: driven by Peter Warren, I'm told, who is a former Trump administration official at OMB. He spent about four years within the Office of Management and Budget. One of his roles was Associate Director for Federal Management Policy at OMB. I think, Tom, that's a job that may not exist anymore. And if it does, I'm not sure who's in it during the Biden administration. (laughs) Currently, Warren is a senior advisor to committee chairman James Comer.
0: All right. And the FAIR Act reports themselves. I mean, in many ways, they're almost like registering for the draft. Every 18-year-old male in the country still has to register, even though there's no draft anymore. In that same way, the even though there's no A76s, agencies still have to report under the FAIR Act.
5: You're absolutely right. And uh, what the committee, the subcommittee letter says to OMB is the FAIR Act inventories are poor, and those that are posted online are in formats that are barely decipherable. And I have to uh, be honest, Tom, I, I don't think the committee's conclusion isn't exactly wrong. Uh, I did my own review of the fair Act inventories based on links provided by the Office of Federal Procurement Policy. In OMB, and it definitely demonstrates a lack of attention to the Fair Act. It is the law of the land, and and there are reasons that Congress has asked you to do this. If you go back to when was the last time OMB really focused on the Fair Act, and it actually goes back to 2017. In fact, in 2019, OMB put out a notice in the Federal Register to say, "Hey, here are the 2017 Fair Act inventories." But that's barely the, what they did because. When you go to that federal register notice, and I do have that linked up on federalnewsnetwork.com, it just takes you back to the agency's main website. It actually does not take you directly to a page, a subpage, where the fair act inventories are listed. And when you go to OMB, OFPP's website for fair act inventories, same thing. Those links, sometimes they take you to fair act inventories. Sometimes they just take you to a page. (laughs) So in the State Department's case, it takes you to an old page, and the State Department says click here for the new page. And when you click there for the new page, it goes to nowhere. It might as well be a 404 error. And then when you look at the inventories themselves, they are very difficult to read. They're coded. They're in spreadsheets. They're in PDFs. They really are all over the place.
0: Now, it's probably safe to say that the Biden administration would sooner put a oil derrick on the National Mall than then sign up for A76 competitions. Is there any signs that Congress might be willing to open this door, or is this just maybe some posturing by Republicans in the House?
5: It's definitely some posturing by the Republicans in the House. They, they, they promise to be hold the, the Biden administration accountable. This is just another piece to that puzzle, I think. At the same time, there has been attempts in the past to fix some of the longstanding challenges with A76. In fact, uh, former Senator Mikulski and current Congressman John Sarbanes introduced a bill in 2011 called the Correction of Longstanding Errors in Agencies' Unsustainable Procurements or Clean Up Act. The idea behind this was to try to fix some of those problems with A76. The, the bill, unfortunately, never advanced through Congress. And there was a 2020 Congressional Research Service report looking at A76 specifically around the Defense Department, and they came up with a bunch of questions that Congress should ask, stuff like... Like should the current law be modified and, and should the policy guidance be modified to reflect some of the best practices and prior lessons learned? What benefits may be realized by requiring a phased rollback of the moratorium and, and allowing some selected public-private competitions to proceed as pilots? E- even DOD in 2018 asked Congress, and, and they potentially submitted a legislative proposal, asking for some limited help to look at A-76 and look at some public-private competitions. As far as we know, that sure. either legislative proposal died in Congress or never was sent.
0: So could A-76 sail again?
5: Probably won't fly. The unions, AFGE specifically, are very much against it, but... Could you think of a- A76 a in a new light? And if you think about going back to the Trump administration, what they did, and they talked about moving from low-value manual work to high-value analytical work and getting feds to really focus on that high-value work, could A76 be in that vein? And could you focus on not just competing jobs with the private sector, but what technology like sure. robotics process automation could be brought in to take care of those low-value manual labors that feds shouldn't have to do anymore? Or what about, what is the private sector roles that are out there? Could the private sector come in and do it more cheaply? And is there a way to understand what that would look like? If there's an opening, it's let's look at it differently than we have in the past. You're absolutely right. I'm not sure the Biden administration or the federal unions would say we should stick with the status quo of A76.
0: Well, Chekhov might have said there's a gun on the wall and it's only the first act. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And check out his reporter's notebook now at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with FederalNewsNetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.